Welcome to No Finish Line, a podcast with John O'Regan, sponsored by Great Outdoors Dublin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of No Finish Line podcast featuring athlete interviews and discussion on running, training, travelling and adventure. And I'm your host, John O'Regan. This episode of the podcast is a recording that I recently did with Matthew McConnell from Great Outdoors. This was a Q&A on their Instagram Live and the full interview is available from their YouTube channel or Facebook page. Outdoors and greatoutdoors.ie I hope you're all doing very well in this sort of weird time that that we find ourselves in, that you're keeping safe, enjoying the nice weather as much as you can, Um, obviously to stay inside and i hope you're all heeding to government guidelines and all there we go there hey, he Matthew, is. how are you doing not too bad at all john good. how are you good thank you thanks for having me yeah good yeah no problem at all how was your run it was okay you know there's only so much you can do in a confined area yeah so are you sort of altering the altering the normal loop or what's the what's on the agenda today i'm doing it slower and doing it faster so today I did a hill session. So I did three okay. sets of three hills and the hill was 30. I ran for 30 seconds the first time and I left a mark down. And then each time I ran it again, I tried to get to the same place within the 30 seconds. And when I started falling short of that, I knew it was time to kind of call a halt to it. Yeah. So typically what I do is I would run for, do three sets of three with three minutes of a gap in between each rep. And then in between each mm-hmm. set, I have five minutes. And that stays the same, the number of reps, the length of the recovery time, and also the gap between sets remains the same. What changes, though, is the duration that I spend on the hill, and that will be determined by my available time or the incline. So today was a fairly steep hill. Yeah, so would that be a pretty standard session for you then to do a slightly shorter session? Because one of the questions that was sent in was, is it a good idea at this time to focus specifically on a training goal? Like, for example, a, a race that you had in mind that might still go ahead down the line? Or is it better to sort of increase a, a level of base fitness or what would you sort of recommend at this at this time to focus on training wise? I would say adjust your plans accordingly. Take it that the race is going to go ahead. I won't say be overly optimistic. You need to be a realist, but you have to have something to aim for. I would as much as possible try and improve on my aerobic capacity. So do mostly easy stuff. But I also think it's important that you don't go as such too far in the one direction with your training. So don't overdo the easy stuff in that you end up neglecting some of the faster stuff. Don't overdo the faster stuff in that you neglect the easy stuff. You need to have a bit of everything and do just enough to maintain what you have. And then when the time comes around that you do know that, yes, my race is going to go ahead, that you will be ready to start training and possibly in better shape than what you were the first time around. Yeah. That, that was an interesting thing that I'm thinking about myself um, at the moment is, is it a good idea at the moment to be sort of introducing new ways of training or experimenting with things? Because we don't have this sort of deadline to to the training like we perhaps would do if there was a race on the horizon. So we've got a little bit of extra wiggle room. Is that potentially well, something when we you're ex- Okay, if your expectations aren't what they were, yes, it is a time to do some experimentation because 
you allow yourself time to make mistakes and to correct them. But what I would say is, and this is very, very important, is don't try too many new things at the same time. And the same goes if you were getting new footwear. Say if somebody went into you to get a pair of boots, so you get a new pair of boots and a new pair of socks, and they end up with blisters. They don't know if it's the socks that give them the blisters, or they don't know if it's the boots that give them the blisters. So you introduce change gradually. So if you are going to make some alteration to your training, and if it's your first time doing hill, uh, hill repeats, I'd say don't introduce hill repeats and also start doing fast repetitions. Do one or the other. Then when you've established one, then you can start bringing the other one in. So introduce change gradually. But now probably is a good time to experiment with yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I just want to ask you a couple of questions coming from more of a sort of selfish point of view, things that I just want to uh, talk to you about that maybe we didn't have the chance to talk about whenever you'd come in when I'd be working on the floor. Now we've got this platform to have a bit more of a longer yeah, for form chat. Yeah. Um, so I'm just coming back from a bit of an injury myself. Um, so after the after the Art O'Neill, um, then I had a got a bit of a shin splints issue in my in my right leg and just sort of slowly getting easing back into the running now a bit of sort of walk jogging running sort of uh, things like that do you have any advice for somebody even somebody just starting out with running now because their gym's closed and stuff like that or somebody that's coming back from injury and how to sort of pace yourself so that you don't overdo it and then and then lose interest in running because you've because you've been because you've overdone it kind of thing well what you mentioned there about gyms being closed and also people are off work so there we do have more time and there are a lot more people starting to exercise but they know they need to be doing something and although it's great there is also the possibility of doing too much too soon so rather than having a, a progressive overload you're just having an immediate overload and that's when injuries such as shin splints do happen the shin splints can be caused by running too fast too soon or running too far too soon the chances are you will have a combination of the two of those happening at the same time so rather than somebody looking at building in that that base where they do mostly easy aerobic stuff where they're allowing their body to get conditioned to the stress that they're going to be putting the body under as they progress with their training in in the beginning you will improve very, very quickly from a physiological point of view whereby your heart and lungs will start to get fitter but the bones and the muscles aren't able to catch up in the same way so you're getting fit on the inside so if you could imagine it's like improving the engine of an old car and really what you need to do is you need to be improving the the chassis as well that takes a little bit longer so with regard shin splints i would say shin splints to me will be a warning to ease back a bit slow it down and if you catch them in the right time it's very, very easy to fix it. And most times they won't actually come back provided you don't go back and overdo it. You shouldn't be testing your breaking point all the time. You shouldn't be always trying to see how far you can go. And the old uh, mentality of no pain, no gain, that's gone. No pain, no gain would refer to a pain from fatigue, uh, just kind of a, a muscle, muscle tiredness. But the pain from an injury is not something that you should ignore. And if you have shin splints, you know you have shin splints. You don't push through it. You take an immediate step back and you correct it. What I find can help in with, with the early stages of shin splints, when they just start, start making themselves known, sometimes it can be just caused by a tightness in your calves. And that tightness in your calves 
if there's no flexibility there, it starts to pull on the bone, the shin bone. So even just when you're having a shower, get a bar of soap and massage your calf muscle with the bar of soap. And that in itself will help remove some of the knots. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be a cure for it, but it's something to try out. But the sooner you start working on it, the more chance you have of actually fixing it. And you won't get any more injured by uh, taking a little bit of rest. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually, it's been about 10 weeks now since I've been running sort of fully. Um, so it has been a bit of a bit of a time period now now getting back to the point where I'm able to do a little bit of a jog without too much pain, which is really, really positive. Um, that sort of eases into a question that was sent in by one of the followers in the in the sort of poll that we put out yesterday on the stories. Um, and it was regarding to training off field versus using your heart rate as a way to monitor your training. What would you what would your take be on on either of those schools of thought? Well, I would say both, but you have to be very, very experienced if you want to be improving and, and, and going by feel. Because going by feel, you, you don't actually know how you are feeling. Like if, if it's a nice warm summer's day, you will be feeling good because of that, but you don't know what's going on on the inside. Same way, like if you're driving your car, I would say the heart rate monitor will be like the rev count in your car. That's telling you what's going on under the hood. And your heart, using your heart rate monitor can stop you from, I suppose, running your easy runs too too hard. And that's what happens quite a lot because people are going by feel. It's because they feel that they, that they can go a bit harder. But that's not necessarily the thing you can do. Uh, from a performance point of view, if you don't do the easy part of your training easy, you'll never be rested enough to do the hard part hard. So going by feel, it's a good chance that everything is going to be mediocre that you're not going to be able to do the hard training as hard as it should be to be getting the best out of yourself. And that you'll sort of just be staying in that sort of grey zone where you're not getting that's, any that's it, faster yes. and you're yeah. not building your endurance either. You're kind of just running. Yeah, that's it. We call <laughs> or whatever we, your sport is, I Yeah, suppose. we call it subjective or objective where you have, like, subjective is your... When you're going to feel, you're, I suppose, you're allowing emotion to take to take part in it as well. And, as I said, if it's a nice, warm, sunny sunny day, you're going to be feeling good. If it's raining, you might be feeling so good. And you might feel it's a bit of an effort. Whereby the heart rate monitor will tell you, OK, this is what's going on, you know. So that's objective. That's free from emotion. And then for somebody just starting out in, into running, how do they know how what sort of heart rate is good and so they've got a fitbit from the shop or wherever and they know they can see a number when they're running but how do they know then if they're overdoing it or underdoing it well what i would say there is it, gather information gather data information over a period of time and when you're starting out if you don't feel like you can talk when you're running you're going too fast you should be able to hold a conversation and it's very important that you start off at a very, very easy pace whereby you said you can't, even if you're on your own, you should know that you could have a conversation. But that means you're, you're getting oxygen in. If you're struggling to talk, it means you're not getting enough oxygen in. That's called going anaerobic. You're going anaerobic, you're, you're using up your limited stores of carbohydrate and in turn, you will, there's a limit to how far you can go. That will slow you down. So get used to what an easy run is like have a look at your Fitbit, see what the heart rate is, and you can start to match one with the other. 
And as an example, then, if you got to the point where you could run, say, five kilometers, and we just do a roundabout figure, we'll say 30 minutes, so five kilometers in 30 minutes, and, you're, and you haven't stopped during that run, and you find that your heart rate average is 150, I would then use that as a starting point. Now, the average then, as, a, as 150, I would then create training zones. So I say, well, my easy run then will be 150 minus two beats and 150 plus two beats. So that gives you training zone of 148 to 152. I'd have that as my easy run. And then I would do maybe one or two runs a week where it will be five to 10 beats above that. So that's a way you can kind of play around with it. But you need to gather some data or information before you can start utilizing something like that. Unless, yeah. of course, you well, get a lab-based test. I'm just test. getting started. Yeah, just yeah, get, yeah, of course. In the beginning, just getting started, all you need to do is run. But the important part is that you don't go too hard, you don't go too fast. And some yeah. people might say, well, I'm, I'm not going fast. But if you're not able to breathe properly, like, fast is relative to your fitness. Mm-hmm. Like somebody running at six minutes a kilometer is as fast as, say, Sonia Sullivan running four minutes a kilometer. They could be both putting the same effort in for the same result. So it's it's all relative. It's you. Yeah, absolutely. And then another one that came in that is sort of based around the restrictions and sort of having to curtail your expectations of training a little bit that came in was the what would your advice be for the best sort of short sessions to do at the moment? Because obviously you're not spending hours and hours out on long runs. So what's a good way to sort of... Um, yeah, make the most of the short sessions, I suppose. Well, use what you have. And we're talking about a, a two-kilometer zone, which is quite a lot. You know, we, we all can have some space in that. There's a session called the Mona Fartlek, which I posted up on my Twitter there just recently. What I'll do is I'll tag you, I'll, I'll post it again, and I'll tag you outdoors. Basically what it is... Yeah, we'll be it's, sure to share yeah, it. It's a structure... It's called a fartlek session. Now, a fartlek session is normally non-structured, whereby you would run as far as you can, as fast as you can, uh, or for as long as you can. Then you take as much time as you need to recover, and then you go again. And you repeat that, rinse and repeat, and then you cool down afterwards. But this one has a bit of, it's similar to that, but it has a bit of structure in it, which makes it easier to repeat the same session. And basically what that is, is you warm up, and then you run for 90 seconds uh, hard, you recover for 90 seconds, you run 90 seconds hard again, you recover for 90 seconds. Then you do four sets of 30, four sets of 60 seconds with 60 seconds recovery in between. Then it goes down to four sets of 30 and four sets of 15. And the recovery time equals the working time. And then when you finish that, you cool down. Now, that's quite a tough session because you, uh, the shorter the rep, the less recovery you have. So it all balances out as as the session progresses so that I find that a really really good one another one you could do is if you want to use your pacing would be to run out for two kilometers time yourself and then try and come back a bit faster and then you could repeat that a couple of times so you could run fast run easy going out run a bit harder coming back and yeah. you know just knock off a couple of seconds here and there but the far, the Mona Fartlek will be one that I would recommend yeah and keeping it a little bit more unstructured and keeping it a little bit more fun just in the two kilometers yeah, and if you two want to, kilometers yeah, back, really plus, easy another, to, yeah. to understand and a traditional way doing the fartlek session would be after warm up you might pick a lamppost up ahead you run hard to the lamppost when you get there you run easy or you walk until you feel you recover then you pick another point and you go again so you set yourself these small targets within the run and you keep going to use up the available time that you have 
Yeah, awesome. Okay, there were obviously a lot of questions. <laughs> Ultra seemed to have absolutely exploded in popularity in recent years, but a lot of the questions that were sent in um, over the past couple of days were in in were about um, ultramarathons and advice that you may be able to give and previous previous marathons that you the ultramarathons that you have done yourself. Um, so the first one that I'm going to give to you is um, advice for your first ultra now, possibly in Ireland this person saying from from a novice point of view so I'm assuming familiar with running and maybe done a marathon uh, but interested in something a little bit longer well the 24 hour race which is time based has become very very popular and the way that would differ from a standard race is with a standard race such as a marathon you have a set distance and you try and cover that the fastest possible time with a 24-hour race, you have a set time and you try and cover the furthest distance you can. Now, that might sound a bit daunting, but there's no limit to how much you have to do during that. So that could be a good introduction to an ultramarathon. You could set yourself a target of maybe 50 kilometres, 50 miles, 100 kilometres. You could set yourself a few targets and keep going based on how you feel. The, the uh, most popular one here would be up in Belfast. It's held in Victoria Park, which is on a loop of less than two kilometres. So you are always passing by your own support crew. Or if you haven't got a support crew, you can set up your own little aid station, have a tent. You're always passing that. So you can do as much as you want, stay in the track for as long as you want. And that's a good way, a safe way of, I suppose, not having to risk having a DNF, which is what you call a did not finish. There's also a 24-hour race on in Wexford, which is held around this time. So again, like that'll be next year before that comes on. If you want a standard distance race, there's a 50-kilometer race, a few 50-kilometer races. There's one in Portumna, one in Donadee, and there's races of, of other distance. But I think the safe bet would be trying a time-based race where you don't have the same limitations. Yeah, and you've got a bit of experience in the 24-hour racing yourself. Uh, you were in Albi in France um, a couple of months back with the Irish team. Just talk us through what your role there um, sort of entailed. Well, I have competed internationally at 24 hours. And most recently, I've been travelling with the ultra-running team, as far as team manager. I'm with Athletics Ireland as the international team's coordinator, and I'd also be an advisor for the ultra-running and then I'm with the world governing body, the IAU, the International Association of Ultra Runners, as part of their communications team. So over in Albi, I would have, I suppose, coordinated the support crew. Then when we're over there, I'd look after the administration, going to technical meetings, collecting race numbers, things like that. And then on the day, making sure that all the athletes are looked after during the event. I think in Albi, we had, I think it was 12 athletes and we had four support crew. And we were seeing those athletes every kilometre and a half. So it was full on for 24 hours. So it's quite a busy event. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. Um, one of the ones that came in that I think is quite interesting, based off, especially based off you just talking there about um, a 24-hour race, you're seeing your support crew very, very often, if you're lucky enough to have too a often. Crew, but there's Well, the support crew say we're seeing the athletes too often. <laughs> it could be the case. But some advice now on sort of crewless ultras. So an ultra that perhaps there are limited aid stations or they're 
you're not allowed to have your own crew. Um, how do you sort of mentally get through that, I suppose? Um, I'm not sure what avenue this person wanted you to attack that question at, but just the idea of not having a crew can be a bit daunting if all you've done is is races where you had your, your team there. Yeah, well, most events, will, you know, depending on, on the distance, you would have be allowed a crew of some sort. Uh, I suppose to be at an aid station not to travel with you and you have to make it to the aid station if you don't have a crew or it's not allowed you would have uh, drop bags and I would say have more than you actually need in the drop bag at, e- at each aid station so rather than be looking looking for it be looking at it even if you don't even if you don't need it Leave something there just in case, and that could be as you know an additional pair of socks, depending on on how extreme the event is. But I say have more food than you need, have more drinks than you need, and maybe have some uh, spare clothing. If you don't need it, just leave it behind you. It's gone, and then move on to the next one. So I say be look be looking at it rather than looking for it, and prepare for all eventualities. And if you can, maybe talk to someone who has taken part in that same race previously and trying to get some voice off them if I knew the race you were talking about I would then be able to suppose, give a more structured answer yeah awesome um, definitely the the bringing more food and leaving more stuff in your in your drop bag than you think is necessary is very good a very good idea um, but only if you're then going to take the stuff that you leave for yourself because I, I remember in the Art O'Neill that I did this year I had loads and loads of stuff in my drop bag and then the excitement of the of the aid station sort of got to me and I ended up running out of the aid station without refueling so that was a uh, yeah I suppose that's just you, you learn you learn from those sort yeah, of and mistakes there's a bit, you can you can have a bit of comfort in knowing that what you didn't take will be available at the next one and yeah. just a, a race like the Spartathlon, you have you were allowed a support crew at a s- certain number of aid stations, not them all, but at the other aid stations you can leave a, a drop bag. Now, what I did the time I did that, there was something, me, something like three hundred runners, so I knew that trying to find your drop bag in a race like that was going to be really really difficult. So I brought over bags that would stand out. I actually had great outdoors paper bags. And so when I, and then inside that, I had a plastic sandwich bag with whatever I needed inside that. And I, I did something as simple as a fig roll, a power bar, which are very, very popular back then. And I also had some uh, powdered carbohydrate drink and an energy gel. So I had those at every aid station along the way, even though I didn't take them, but I knew that I, that they were there just in you case. You could fall back on yeah, that. Yeah, and, and that's, I suppose, like a safety net as well. If you know that you have something waiting for you, you can take that little bit of an extra chance with, I suppose, stepping up a gear, going a little bit faster rather than slowing down trying to conserve energy. And it gives you that peace of mind and it allows you to take that little bit of an extra risk. And nutrition-wise, what would you do in training then, uh, preparing for these really, really long distance races? Would you like plant food around your course like go out go ahead before your 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 long run say on a sunday or whenever or would you loop back to your to your house then if you're training for say a hundred mile race or something like that well i'd never go back to the house because your house is the finish line that's your if you go into the house there's always the temptation to do something Sit else on the couch. yeah that's it so you, you <laughs> stay away from your house now depending on the race that will determine 
the energy system that's going to be used, and that will determine then how you how you train, how you fuel yourself. For a 24-hour race, now you've got to be very, very careful talking about nutrition because it really is an experiment of one and we're all different. But for a 24-hour race, I would tend to run the long runs without anything. If I was training for a 100-kilometer yeah. race, I would be fueling up during it because the intensity is different. So for a 24-hour race, you're going at the low end of your aerobic zone, so you're looking at becoming uh, efficient at fat burning. So you're predominantly going to be burning fat as a fuel. And then, of course, you'll have your hydration. If you're going to be running a faster event, you will be needing carbohydrates. So during the training, you'll have to prevent your... Uh, I would say stop yourself from running out of fuel, which is the carbohydrate. So yeah, the actual event will determine the energy system that is used. Just a question came in there. Um, any thoughts on the mental side when you hit lows in, in, I assume, in sort of like ultras and longer races? Um, what would your take on that be, John? Well, I would say it's good if you can train your... Like if I'm out training and I start hitting those lows... I could have looked at that as being an opportunity to prepare myself for those times during a race. It's easier to deal with those lows during a race than it is during a training run. So training run, you know, the more you get those opportunities to kind of push yourself through that, the better. And the way you will prepare yourself for those moments during the race is when you're sitting down on a Sunday evening watching Coronation Street or whatever, and you're nice and comfy, and you say, okay, Maybe now is when I should go out and I should do a one-hour run or a two-hour run. And that's what will make the difference when you are suffering a low point during your race. If you can turn your back on the television and the couch and go out and run 10, 20 miles when you hadn't been planning it, that's, that's what will make the difference. Yeah. And then from that point of view, is having a coach a good sort of tactic to have? So that then they can just throw things like that at you or being self-accountable what do you think is better it can help like not everybody needs a coach but i think everybody needs a bit of coaching like sometimes a coach can be there just to to bounce an idea off it can be a second opinion and it can be like runners and sports people in general can be very hard on themselves and the hardest part is the not doing something you know taking breaks you know uh taking a day off when you might be getting an injury, but they don't want to do that. Especially when you really, really, really get into it. They don't want to be doing nothing. And that's when asking somebody else a question, what do you think? And I suppose that can I suppose, take some of the guilt away from it. It can make it easier to make that uh, that decision. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, it's race dependent. Uh, this is another question that came in. Um, but what would a peak week of training for an ultra look like? I suppose we can talk in percentages of the of the length of the race, um, because it will obviously depend. I would imagine the volume is going to go way up for something much longer. But what what does a peak week of training look like? It depends on the race, and it depends on the athlete. So two things. So if it's I give you uh, let me see the Sinead Kane the twenty four hour racing. She runs a lot of her runs at at the same at the same pace, so she doesn't really take any time off at all. So her training would be suppose she would just train all the way through. So she doesn't need uh, her her uh, peak week would be similar to a lot of other weeks. So she typically would be running about a hundred miles a week, and even going into the race, she would do more or less the same. She'd run the same volume. So 
she'd run the same number of days, but just reduced the runs that little bit in uh, in volume. Uh, for somebody else who's running as maybe a high intensity, they would have, say for a 100 kilometer race, they would need to rest their legs up to get the best out of themselves on the day. So you maybe be talking about an extra day or two off per week. Train three days, take a day off. Train two days, take a day off. Something like that. So I'd say reduce the volume, maintain a bit of intensity. Really, it's it's athlete dependent. So it's it, that's a hard one to say now. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure this one is pretty athlete dependent as well. Just one that came in just on the live here. Uh, longest training run for a 100k race. So I suppose, again, it, it'll probably sort of depend on the athlete, I suppose. But Okay, for a 100k race, yeah, again, it, it would depend on the athlete. Now, you, you couldn't run 100 kilometers in training because you wouldn't be recovered enough to be able to train on top of that. So I would say for a 100k race, I'd be looking at, rather than thinking of distance, I was thinking about time. So I'd be looking at a run of about four hours. And the four hours would be at an easy enough pace. And whatever distance happens during that, happens during it. But before that, that same person, that same athlete, would be running lots of runs that would be in around 25 to 35 miles. So they would be distance-based, but then they would have, during their peak week or leading into the taper, they would have a run that would be more time on feet, but it's easier. So that means that they, I suppose, they're not putting the same impact on the body and it's easier to recover from. Yeah, cool. Um, for your, from your own experience and from, I suppose, a coaching background as well and athletes that you would know, what's the most common way that people sort of occupy their brain when they're out for these four-hour runs? Is it audiobooks or podcasts or music or just, just do people just not listen to anything? No, people don't really listen to anything because if you have to rely on you know you shouldn't rely on something in training that you won't be able to rely on during the race and you know if you become dependent on something like that it can then make it difficult on the day so me i i would say that that my training partner would be my my heart rate monitor and that's what i listen to listen to my heart I, i keep an eye on that and another thing that would keep you walk about is if you're following a training plan that you're not just going out and running that you're, that you're doing definite sessions, that you'll need to be paying attention to that. If you're training for a marathon and you lose concentration, chances are your pace will end up going slower than you wanted. If you're training for an ultra marathon and you lose concentration, you'll end up going faster than you're planning on going. So it's a good idea to keep an eye on that. If you're listening to an audiobook, you might end up going off the bit of a trance. And you probably won't be even listening to the audio book because that yeah. you, you, you'll just it's be kind switching of just off. Background noise. Yeah, yeah, that's it. You're you're not really taking it in, and then you're you're missing the point of the actual training session. Yeah, yeah that's me personally. And, and does, yeah, I suppose it, it does depend athlete from athlete to athlete. Yeah, read um, the book. What sort of yeah? What sort of um, misconceptions do you think people have about? running a 24-hour race, for example. I'm sure there's not much... Some people have their own misconceptions about something that's that long. It's hard to wrap your head around something like that. Yeah, well, there's there's this misconception that ultra-running is slow, that people train slow and they eat a lot. And talking about referring to ultra-marathons as being, you know, long runs or a picnic, that is not the case. You're not going to get anywhere 
if you're just running slow all the time and if you're overeating and then you get people saying well I'm going to be using 10,000 calories during this race and then they start planning their nutrition around what they think they will be losing it, that's nonsense and you will get nowhere like that a lot of the calories and fuel that you're using you're already carrying it's, all, it's in your muscles that, that's the way your body works the fuel that you need for these activities you actually have it there already all you need to do during an event is to replenish rather than trying to replace. So you just keep you, you just need to about be, be topping up your stores to ensure that things are running as I suppose as smoothly and economically as they should be. So you don't look at putting back in everything that you think you take out. And as far as training goes, an ultra marathon runner trains very, very similar to a marathon runner, except they do a lot more distance. The paces mightn't be as extreme, but it's very, very similar. And you have to, like, the structure would be, you know, hill reps, tempo runs, long runs, easy runs, recovery runs. It's very, very similar in the layout to what a marathon runner would be doing. Just a bit more. Cool. A question there coming in from Rory. Um, what should an Irish runner focus on when they're trying to compete abroad? I'm not sure exactly what that question means but if I was travelling away somewhere the gear that I really needed me that goes in my carry on luggage okay. mm-hmm. anything that I think I'll need that I won't that won't be available where I'm going I bring with me that that goes say will be referring to food and things like that but I carry all my essentials with me uh, as my carry on I wear my running shoes and I try and arrive at the venue or location as early as I possibly can if it's the case that I think I'm going to need to acclimatise or there's a there's a possibility of delays that would mean missing the start of the event. Mm-hmm. So, so I... May, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> right. So I would make sure that I'm as prepared and as comfortable as I possibly can when I get there. Yeah. Um, if you have any worry, if that doesn't answer your question, maybe fire John a message. He'll be probably be able to yeah. talk you through a little a little bit better than that. I'm conscious now of your time. I'm just, I don't know if you've eaten after your run now. Uh, no, John, I'm fine. I just to... no, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. If you're okay. Okay. If there's still an interest um, there. Yeah. No. People still seem to be. If if anyone has any questions, uh, please fire before we stick a pin in it. I I see a um, question coming up there. Any thoughts on recovery strategy? Yes, I do. With recovery, the adaption happens uh, during the recovery. So I would say don't be be in a rush to recover. Now, what I mean by that is I ignore stuff like compression gear, these boots that you push air into, ice baths and that. I don't use anything like that. Now, I have used them and I probably still will use them if required. But if you have the time, you should let your body recover as naturally as possible. When you do, like I did a hill session now tonight, and I know that after that, that my legs are, legs are quite sore and there will be that bit of inflammation. Now what I'm going to do is, I'm going to allow myself a couple of days before I do anything as hard as that again, because I hadn't done it in a while. So my recovery strategy will be, I will get good food into me. That'll be something that's high in protein, carbohydrate over the next couple of days some good sleep and i'll train easy over the coming days now if i was in a rush to try and i suppose 
work on my cardiovascular fitness rather than building strength on my legs then and I wanted to get back training quickly then I could maybe make an effort to speed up the recovery of my legs but by doing that I'm not getting the same adaption because I'm speeding up the process rather than letting the body repair itself the way it should be repairing so I hope that makes sense to you yeah, uh, there's another one here coming in. Um, going into my second hundred miler, August eighth, I'm done. You hope? I, yeah, fingers crossed. I've done the course before. Uh, it's no longer about just finishing. Any advice on the mental side? It's the Connemara hundred miler. Okay, now the first time can be easier than the second time. It's like the dog going to the vet. Be wagging his head going in the first time. <laughs> he doesn't know. He doesn't. Correct. Doesn't know what the head of But the next time he goes up, and when you're standing on the start line, you'll know in advance, and you start remembering where the sticking points were along the way. So I'd break it down into manageable chunks, and give yourself those little mental rewards for each time you hit those those spots. Be prepared for the low points from when you hadn't before, and make sure that you don't stop at the same places that you stopped previously, that you try and go a little bit beyond them. So you're doing the same thing, but breaking it down into a slightly different way. So in, in some ways, you've, although you've done it before, you're making it into a different event. So you're creating something, something in you. And try not to think of the end of the race when you're at the start, right? Because you can, you can kind of drown in that distance. You'll be overwhelmed. So break it down into manageable chunks. Do something a little bit different than what you did the last time. But not too different because obviously if you finished it before, it has worked. So just change it around a little bit. Now, again, if you, if you want to get in touch, I can kind of talk you through it in a bit more detail. I'm no expert, but I'll tell you how I would actually approach it. Yeah, no, that sounds like sound advice. Um, any pre-race rituals? Um. Uh, well, by the way, you're a legend. Okay, says this person. okay, thanks. Well, that the, the previous ritual, what I always do, and this is for every race, is the softest pillow is a clear conscience. And the best thing you can do before a race, in the night or two before a race, is to have a good night's sleep. So I would get all my gear ready as soon as possible before the actual race. Now, if I was flying somewhere on a Thursday, I try and have everything I needed on the Monday. I would write out a checklist and I would confirm that everything that I need, everything that's on that checklist I have, before I go to bed, If uh, before I go to bed, I look at that stuff and I, I would touch off it just to make sure I know it's there. Because what can happen is you'll be in bed and you're going to wake up. Did I pack my T-shirt? Do I have my running shoes? And those things will be going on in your head and doubt will kick in. And that will keep you awake. But if you say, no, I have them. Sure, I was looking at them. And that'll help you to sleep. So dot the I's and cross the T's. If you have a checklist, it's a really, really good idea to, uh, you know, really good idea to start doing. And I said, don't get complacent. Do the same thing every time. So, you know, treat every time like it's the first. Yeah. Um, you've done a lot of cool adventures and sort of races and stuff like that yourself. So, if you want, if you don't mind, just touching on perhaps the coolest race that you've done or the biggest adventure and things that you maybe learned from that. 
Well, the coolest I thought would have to be the North Pole Marathon. You won't get much cooler than that. Yeah. And no, I doubt. <laughs> that was April the 10th, 2004. And actually, I've, I've just shown my T-shirt here, which is the GPS track. Can you see that? Oh, I saw that on your story, yeah. So the reason That's why it's like cool. that is the, the North Pole, there's no land there. So it's a floating mass of ice and it's moving. When you start the race, you complete the first loop. When you complete the first loop, you're back to the point where you started, but you're not because yeah. because the ice has moved and it's continuously moving and it's it's going in whatever direction. So each loop you do was in, is in a different place. So that that's pretty cool. Now when I went to that race, I was with Mark Pollock. Mark is is blind, and I was his running guide at that. We were wearing snowshoes, and my thoughts on what it would be like and wearing snowshoes was that when we complete the first loop that we will be compacting the snow down so each other loop would become easier and easier but it's not snow it's ice it's a kind of a slushy ice so what really happened was as you're running it was like you're we plowing a field so rather than it, it compacting it it was digging it up so it was like we were running eventually in a ditch and we had a couple of falls little mishaps but one big thing I learned from that was when you go to a cold environment, now actually this is something I had learned before, but I never got the opportunity to put it into this kind of practice. And until you can put it into practice, it's it's just information. But now I was getting getting to use it. So when you're in a cold environment, you have to dress comfortably warm when you're inactive. So that means that you're wearing your down jacket, your down gloves, your hat. So you're warm, you're, you're not, there's no risk of getting frostbite or anything like that. When you're active, you have to be, you know, sorry, when I say comfortably warm, that means you're not overheating either, so there's no chance of you sweating, there's no moisture. When you're active, you have to be comfortably cold. So the activity is raising your body temperature to the point where you, you can survive, but not to the point where you're overheating and you're generating sweat. Because if you start sweating and then you slow down and it starts to cool down, the sweat will turn to ice when you move again. Yeah. And ice will conduct heat weight in the body 250 times faster than when you were dry. So what happened with ourselves was we, myself and Mark, we were dressed well. But something I didn't consider was that the heat coming from my face. So I was wearing ski goggles. So as the moisture come from my face... It was hitting the lens of the ski goggle and it was freezing. You know, if you're in a snowmobile or skiing, there's a breeze coming through that uh, called the ventilation that stops them from uh, steaming up. But we didn't have that. So my ski goggles were freezing because of the pace we were going at. So every lap I was having to take the glasses off, bring them over to the mess tent to defrost them. Previous to that, I was trying to clear it with my uh, fingernail, but when I, or with my glove... But when I took the goggles off, I could feel the skin of my face freezing over and the goggles were just frozen solid. There was no way it was clearer than that. So that was a, a good a lesson learned and a good experience. Definitely an adventure yeah. anyway, goodness yeah. me. Um, I suppose this will sort of touch on one of the questions that just came in there. Um, any race that was particularly enjoyable that you really, that you really enjoyed yourself doing? You don't really enjoy them that much when you're doing them, if you're being competitive. But Even retrospectively. Yeah, but well, I suppose the Inca Trail Marathon, that, that was quite interesting. I, in the days leading up to that, I knew from a previous race, a high altitude race, 
I had an idea on how to acclimatise properly for these. So in the days leading up to it, I spent my time acclimatising. I was always at the back. I was always slow, doing my own thing. But then when the day of the race came, I just took off, did my own thing. And I spent a lot of time out on the Inca Trail just on my own. And I suppose that was a nice experience. And getting to the yeah. end and passing through the Sun Gate and arriving at Machu Picchu very, very early before the crowds were arriving. That, mm. was, that was quite an experience. And that was 2008. But the year previous to that, I went to Nepal and did the trek to Everest Base Camp again with Mark Pollock. And we did a marathon from Ever- from just above Everest Base Camp at the Cumba Weissfall. And I think that was... But was the most difficult thing I have ever done. I've never done anything as difficult since then. Very, very challenging. And that was, that was two weeks of a lot of effort. You know, for me, I was talking a lot, feeding information back to Mark. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was getting a sore throat from all that. And then Mark was having to listen to me. And he was using walking poles to feel his way, as well as the instructions. So Mark was having to use a lot of mental strength during that race and plus his shoulders were taking an awful battering during it. We had to do that, uh, say, 10 days we were like that getting to Everest Base Camp and then we had the race. And when we did the race, we had only got out of Everest Base Camp and made our way along the Kumbu Icefall and we got to the first checkpoint which was at Gorak Shep, the original Everest Base Camp. And that's less than about two or three kilometres. But by the time we got there, the race was nearly was nearly over. And then we knew, okay, well, now we're in a, diff- we're in a race against the environment. So this is different now. We, we now have new competition. We, ha- we were in a race for survival to get down off the, out of the valley, off the mountain. Be- well, I won't say before it was dark, but mm-hmm. be- before we actually, you know, weren't able to move anymore. And that was very, very challenging. And that would stand out as being the toughest thing I've ever done. And I suppose that would be a standout memory. Yeah, that sounds... I, I, I have to kind of think about them, you know. And then, of course, yeah. about the, uh, back in 2017 with Sinead Kane, I did the World Marathon Challenge, which was a marathon on each of the seven continents, which we completed in less than seven days. So wow. that, that was quite an well, experience. That- that's definitely something that I like listening to. I don't know if it's an idea for something to throw into the podcast is race memories or something now that we're going yeah, through maybe. a period where yeah. there are no races. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Potentially could be a good good idea. Anyway, I, I'm going to let you go now because I believe there's a there's a limit on these lives and we want to be able to save them so the people that didn't log in are able to watch them on the, on the story. I believe it caps at about an hour and we're nearing that. Um, so I'll take this opportunity to thank you very much for coming on and, and joining us and all that. And all the best with your continued training and stay safe and wash your hands and all that stuff. Yes, and same to yourself. <laughs> yeah, so thanks very much, John. Okay, um, thanks for having me. Enjoyed that. See you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.